Welcome to Historically Haunted, a podcast that takes a look at a historical location that also has a haunted reputation. So come with me as together we enter the strange and creepy world of the unexplained and keep history fun along the way. and welcome to Historically Haunted. I am your host, Ariel, and today's episode is going to be a little different than my normal episodes. It's going to be different for two reasons. The one I will get to in just a second, but the other is because we are witnessing a very historical event unfolding right before our eyes on live television and on social media. And I am talking about the invasion of Ukraine, and obviously I don't want to get into the politics of it, but I hate seeing people get hurt, and this is an awful situation. And if you are caught up in this, I just wanted to say that I'm praying for you and I hope that there can be a peaceful resolution soon. I wish we could do more. I'm angry. I'm upset. I think the rest of the world is pretty angry that this is happening. And also it being on social media, we're seeing it in a way that we've never seen war before. So I just hope that things will settle down soon and that everyone can just calm down and we can come to a peaceful resolution and we can just stop all of this chaos. So again, if you're one of the brave men and women fighting for your right to be a country and to the amazing protests that are going on in Russia, people are risking their lives to get arrested for what they think is right, you know, no war. That's what a lot of people seem to be wanting. And I just, I'm praying for all of you in this horrible situation that I hope will end soon. Sorry to start this episode off with such a downer, but it just, what I said I felt needed to be said. Okay, so now I'm going to explain why I am posting a bonus episode today instead of a regular episode. Well, as many of you guys know, I'm moving and moving takes a lot of work. Anyone who's ever moved knows it's complete chaos until you get into your new home. So I've been doing a lot of packing and staging for the house and I was working pretty much all month on this project, so I had no time to do much research. However, I was able to make a bonus episode for my Patreons and that is what I will be posting for all of you today. It's about the hauntings and history of the London Underground and some good history about London as well. So there's no pressure to become a Patreon member for anyone who's not. Just you listening is good enough for me. So thank you all so much for your ongoing support. I hope to be back soon with normal episodes as long as everything works out. As you guys know, again, moving can be very stressful, but I hope things will calm down here in the next month or two. Since this is a bonus episode, things will be a little bit different than my normal episodes. So if I say something to my Patreons, please just ignore it and disregard it. And I hope that you guys enjoy the history and hauntings of the London Underground. London has been an important city for over 2,000 years. It was used as a trade route for the Roman Empire, was burned to the ground by a fearsome warrior queen, and has been the home for the British royal monarchy for hundreds of years. Wherever you go in London, there is history all around you. But with the modern city that it is today, it is easy to get caught up in the hurried everyday life that people often don't think too much about what is right underneath their feet. While people know that the London Underground, also known as the Tubes, was the world's first subway system, they might not know what they found during the building process. 
In fact, the whole city of London has an intertwining network of old tunnels, mines, and hidden rivers that have been forgotten. Forgotten, that is, until the ghosts remind the living of what once was. and welcome to a historically haunted bonus episode made exclusively for my Patreons. Thank you so much for listening. Today, we will be taking a look at the hauntings found in the London's underground. I will mostly be focusing on the tube system today, but I also wanted to talk about some other famous ghost stories that all happen underground. When you think of the spooky things that are underground, most people think of monsters like trolls and tommyknockers, but ghost stories are a constant theme as well. Tonight, I will walk you through the history of London focusing on some of the major events in London's history. And then we will go down to the London Underground and discuss some spooky stories along the way. London has lived through wars, fires, and terror attacks, so tonight's history might be a bit more disturbing than some of my other bonus episodes. But if you're ready for a good history lesson about London, then let's grab our flashlights and you better bring a backup because the London Underground is not a place that you want to be when all the lights go out. The first to settle in the London area were hunter-gatherers around 6000 BC. Archaeologists found evidence of bridges built during the Bronze Age and forts that had been found near the River Thames that were constructed during the Iron Age. In 43 AD, ancient Romans came to the island that they named Britannica and they built a port along the river. They also created a trading settlement that they called Londinium. A few years after setting up the port, the Romans built a bridge to cross the River Thames to move goods and soldiers to the other side. When the Romans first showed up to conquer the area, the land was already divided into at least 23 different Celtic tribes. Londinium became the capital of Roman Britain and the city prospered for a about 20 years until 60 AD when it was burnt to the ground by Queen Boudicca. Queen Boudicca was the queen of the Iceni people. She led an uprising against the Roman Empire after her kingdom was ravaged by Roman soldiers. After the Romans began pillaging, killing, and enslaving other Celtic tribes, Boudicca's husband, King Prastigus, decided to ally himself with the invaders to try to save his people. He even helped the Romans defeat other Celtic tribes, and because of this, the Roman governor offered him a loan of 40 million cesterns. King Prastigus passed away in 60 AD, leaving half of his kingdom to his two daughters. He also appointed Boudicca as their regent. The other half of his land he left to the Roman emperor, Nero. He hoped that this would secure a peaceful alliance for his people, but sadly it wasn't meant to be. After the death of the king, Nero demanded that the Iceni people pay back the loan of 40 million cesterns plus interest immediately. His reason for this was that the Roman Empire did not recognize a queen as being in charge of a kingdom. When Queen Boudicca could not come up with the money, Nero used this as an excuse to attack the Iceni. Roman soldiers forced their way into every Iceni home, stealing everything of 
of value. They killed anyone who stood up to them, and they also raped the women, including Boudicca's two daughters. When Queen Boudicca tried to stop them, they stripped her naked and whipped her until she bled. The Romans left her in her war-torn village, thinking that she would be emotionally defeated. However, this would end up being one of Rome's biggest mistakes. It was Boudicca's fury that made her become one of the most famous warrior queens in history. First, she went to the other Celtic tribes to rally forces to start an official rebellion against the Romans. As Boudicca was busy rallying her forces, the German governor Sertoni was not worried about this because the Romans believed that a woman was not a threat. He instead marched his army to Mana, modern-day Wales, to deal with an uprising there. By doing this, he left the city of Colindunum completely defenseless. Boudicca saw this as the perfect opportunity to strike. Sword in hand and adorned in war paint, she led an army of 120,000 strong into the city while riding a chariot in the front. The city was full of retired soldiers, but they were caught completely off guard and were no match for the rising army. Her army swept through the city, killing all they came across. People who survived the initial attack fled into the temple of Claudius to try to make a last stand. They sent a message to the neighboring city of Londinium for help, but apparently those in charge did didn't think a woman could pose much of a threat. They only sent 200 unarmed enslaved soldiers to try to deal with what they thought at the time was a small uprising. They were able to defend the temple for two days until the Celts set the temple on fire, killing everyone inside. Next, Boudicca set her sights on Londinium. After word got out that Colindunum fell, the Romans sent 2,000 soldiers to try to stop Boudicca's army, but they were wiped out. Rome's governor got word of this and sent his only 5,000 strong army back to Londinium, but he chose to sacrifice the city rather than face Boudicca head on. The wealthy traders of Londinium knew Boudicca was coming and fled the city, leaving only the poor behind. Boudicca's army ravaged the city. They freed Celtic slaves and killed anyone who stood in their way, and she did it brutally. They then set the whole city on fire, burning it to the ground. It's estimated that 70 to 80,000 people were killed in the attack. They then went to the neighboring city of Verulanium and attacked it as well. The Roman governor was able to get 5,000 more troops and set out to try to stop Boudicca. Knowing that his Roman forces were still greatly outnumbered, the governor set up his forces in a strategic spot. He set up on the Roman road, with his soldiers in a narrow gorge. Boudicca's army had nearly 300,000 soldiers, while the Romans only had 10,000. However, the way that the Romans had positioned themselves forced the Celts to only use a small amount of their army at a time. The Romans were also better armed. They were able to defeat the waves and waves of Celtic soldiers, and in the end, the Romans defeated Boudicca's army. It's believed that Boudicca and her daughters died on the battlefield or from battle wounds shortly after the fight, even though the Romans tried to change the story to the three of them committing suicide on the battlefield. The Romans tried to use this form of death to make her sound cowardly and weak, but this today is not believed to be true. Most historians think that Boudicca did die the true warrior queen that she was. For a time, her story died out due to the Romans being devastatingly embarrassed that they had lost important cities and major battles at the hands of a woman. But luckily, her story didn't truly die, and the legend of Boudicca remains. There is even a statue of her and her daughters riding a chariot in London today. And to give you an idea of just how embarrassed the Romans were over all of this, here is a quote from the writer 
writings of a famous Roman historian named Cassius Deus. He wrote, All the ruin was brought upon the Romans by a woman, a fact which in itself caused them the greatest shame. After Boudicca was defeated, the Romans rebuilt the cities. Eventually, Londinium had more than 40,000 people living within its city walls. The Roman Empire fell in 476 AD. After the Romans fell, the Vikings began to attack Britannica, and this caused the city to be mostly abandoned. Not soon after the Romans fell, different groups began to fight over Britannica, and the changing of land ownership continued for a few centuries. Eventually, a distinguished soldier named Ethelstan conquered the last of the Viking invaders. After his victory, he decided to crown himself king. After forcing other lords and kings in the area to submit to his rule, he became the first Anglo-Saxon king of Britain. He reigned from 895 to 939 AD. William the Conqueror came onto the scene in 1066 AD when he was crowned King of England. William was the illegitimate son of Robert I, the Duke of Normandy. After his father died, when William was only seven years old, he officially became a duke. However, his illegitimate status brought into question his right to have the title at all. The British nobility also gave him a cruel nickname called William the Bastard. William lived out his early years dodging assassination attempts. However, William also had the support of King Henry I of France. As William entered his 20s, he began to gain major support and he built his own army. William was also related to Edward the Confessor, the King of England. Edward the Confessor died in 1066. William claimed that Edward had promised him the crown. However, two other men also made the same claim. One was Harold Godwinson, who was a very popular and powerful English noble. He was crowned King Harold II the day after King Edward died, which was a little controversial. The other man claiming the throne was King Hardrada of Norway. King Hardrada invaded England and King Harold took his army to fight. William chose this time to cross the English Channel with his own army and set up camp near the city of Hastings. William's army included archers and heavily armed knights. After King Harold defeated the Norwegians, he turned back toward William. The two sides fought in the Battle of Hastings. William ended up winning this battle since his well-equipped army was able to overpower King Harold's foot soldiers. King Harold was also killed in the battle by being shot by an arrow. William continued across England, capturing London and crowned himself King of England on December 25, 1066. William's legacies include the many castles he had built across England. Perhaps the most famous is the White Tower of the Tower of London. Also starting with his reign, the title of king was passed to the firstborn son upon the king's death. William the Conqueror started the line of the English monarchy. Every king or queen since are his descendants. As you can see, the history of London is already very violent, but this is just the beginning. Something more deadly than an invasion of another country or the wrath of a queen was coming.
In the year 1300, London was a densely populated city with roughly 80,000 people. Living conditions were filthy with raw sewage in the streets and the River Thames was way over polluted. Not to mention that the people living in the city during this time were practically living on top of each other and hygiene was little to none. This made it the perfect breeding ground for disease. When the Black Death swept through England in 1348, the people of London didn't stand a chance. The bubonic plague came to southwestern England during the summer of 1348, and it spread from town to city, leaving a devastating death toll in its wake. Bubonic plague is caused by a bacteria called Eusenia pestis. It can be spread more than one way, which is what made it so deadly. The transmission can work two ways. Either a rat that was originally infected with the bacteria can infect multiple fleas who then spread it to more rats, or a flea could have the bacteria and it could infect many rats and other animals. Then an infected flea could bite a human. After a human became infected, it can spread through droplets from the infected person's coughing. And well, you can see where this is going. Due to the lack of hygiene and understanding of how germs spread, the plague had nothing to stop it. It became so deadly that someone could wake up feeling sick and be dead by the time dinner was served. It was a horrible way to die and so many people did die that bodies started to stack up in the streets because there was no space left in the graveyards for them. Because of this, city officials and churches had to start creating mass graves to get the dead off the streets and out of homes. These graves became known as plague pits, and some days the death toll was so bad that up to 200 people a day were being buried in these mass graves. The dead were neatly stacked, some as many as five deep. Then a priest would recite scripture over the grave as it was being covered. The Black Death continued to ravage the city until the spring of 1350. By its end, it had killed between one-third to one-half of the population of London. The total death toll of the Black Death has been estimated to be between 25 to 200 million people. Plague came back multiple times over the next 100 years. The Great Plague of London lasted from 1665 to 1666. It was the worst outbreak since the Black Death, and it killed 15% of London's population. That was not the end of London's bad luck, because on September September 2nd, 1666, a raging fire swept through London and burned for four days. The fire was so bad that the king himself joined in the firefighting by passing buckets of water to his men. The massive panic that Londoners felt during the fire left its mark on history. Not understanding fire science, the people of London did not realize that embers could float far away from the main fire on the wind and cause new fires to start on their dry thatched roofs. This sparked a massive rumor and conspiracy that foreign terrorists were starting fires and making a large fire spread throughout the city. This was quickly followed by people swearing up and down that they had personally seen French soldiers setting fire to buildings. When the king ordered the firefighters to start blowing up buildings with gunpowder to try to make a fire break, the people in London who heard the explosions thought that a full army was entering the city. This created mass hysteria, and a large mob went out and attacked any foreigner they saw, 
and they pushed them to the edge of the city. When the fire finally stopped burning, it had leveled the original buildings of the medieval city and had killed at least eight people, although historians think that the number could be much greater than what was actually reported at the time. In the end, 436 acres burned, destroying 13,200 homes, and 87 out of the 109 churches were burnt to the ground. The fire was so bad that it took the city over 50 years to rebuild. Before the rebuilding efforts began, the city created new rules to prevent the fire from happening again. Houses had to be faced in brick instead of wood. They also widened some of the streets and added two new ones. They paved the streets and they laid new sewers. While the fire was devastating, it did help stop the plague. The fire killed a huge amount of rats and fleas and burnt the filthy and unhealthy medieval houses to the ground. The brand new sewer system also helped the city become cleaner than it had ever been up until that point. In 1837, Queen Victoria was crowned Queen of England. Her reign has been romanticized in TV shows and Hollywood, but living in the Victorian times was not as glamorous as people today imagine it to be. The Victorian period brought on the Industrial Revolution. London became the main source of coal, iron, steel, and textiles. The country also saw revolutionary breakthroughs in science and art, and while this sounds great on the surface level, the reality was pretty bleak. For the upper classes, the Victorian era was full of lavish parties and new inventions. The middle class also favored pretty well, but for the working class and the poor, the conditions were harsh. They were expected to work long hours in dangerous factories. Their living conditions were cramped and so unsanitary that the life expectancy was extremely low. Horrific work accidents happened frequently, and the workers could do almost nothing about it because the wages were so low. They were basically trapped in their situation, and the factory owners did anything they could to stamp out any talk of unions or strikes. Leading up to the Victorian period, factories were producing so many products for around the world that the River Thames became the main thoroughfare for ships exporting goods. The River Thames saw 1,000 ships per day. This made it one of the busiest rivers in the world, but it also created a problem. The London Bridge was the only bridge that crossed the river. The bridge was constantly gridlocked by pedestrians and wagons. In fact, there was an old saying regarding the bridge. The saying was, it took longer to get items across the river than it took it to cross the Atlantic. Goods that were shipped in often sat on the docks for weeks before they got to their destinations, all because the bridge was almost impossible to cross and something needed to be done. City officials believed building more bridges would increase gridlock for the ships because they were already being affected by the London Bridge. New bridges would also take up valuable docking space. If they could not go over the river to solve this problem, they would have to go under. Marc Isambrod Burnell was a Frenchman living in America. He studied to become a civil engineer and an architect. Burnell designed the war defenses on Staten Island and drew up plans for the first canal that connected Lake Champlain to the Hudson River. He was also known for building famous houses, docks, and commercial buildings. He was such a popular engineer that he was appointed chief engineer of New York City. In 1799, Burnell came to London 
London to try to figure out a way to create something that had never been made before, a tunnel under a river. To achieve this amazing feat, he created what some believe was one of the most finest pieces in Victorian engineering. He created a steel cage that would hold the river ceiling up while men cut into the soft earth. Behind the cage would be bricklayers. These bricklayers would make the tunnel behind the cage, preventing the ceiling from caving in. As the men tunneled, the cage moved forward inch by inch. Brunel also created the first caisson. A caisson is a large waterproof steel cylinder that pressed down into the soft soil and created the first access point to the tunnel. After drawing up these plans, Brunel left London putting his son in charge of the project. The working conditions were horrible. As the men dug, they were constantly being drenched with raw sewage from the river above. Men could only last two hours before passing out. Methane gas would create fireballs due to the oil lamps that the workers carried. One day in 1827, there was a bad accident in the tunnel. The tunnel filled with water, killing six men. After the accident, the public started to question the project. To regain confidence in the project, Brunel's son held a fancy dinner party in part of the finished tunnel. He got the rich people at the dinner to buy more shares to help him fund the rest of his project. He also made sure that the newspapers knew of this dinner, and it was his way of saying if the tunnel was safe enough for the rich to dine in, then it was safe enough for the workers to finish the project. In 1843, the tunnel was completed. It took a total of 18 years to finish, and it was named the eighth wonder of the world. The tunnel was used for pedestrian crossing until 1865, when it became a part of the underground. And now that brings us to the tube system. After the pedestrian crossing of the River Thames was solved, another one remained. How to get railroads into the heart of London. The city desperately needed railroads to keep up with the supply and demand of their factories, but they didn't have room to build above-ground rail lines throughout the densely populated city. One man believed that he had a solution. Charles Pearson was a London lawyer and a politician. He believed that they could dig trenches for a railroad system. At first, his suggestion was laughed at, and it took him many years to get people to believe in the project. Finally, in 1859, Pearson got permission to build the railroad. The design for the railroad is called a cut and cover. They would dig trenches, then lay track, and then cover the track, leaving it in a tunnel. They would then pave the new roadway on top of it. The project was enormous, and it caused chaos for years, disrupting daily life for Londoners. To finish the project, they also had to demolish an area known as the slums. This sadly made 12,000 people homeless. There were a few areas where pedestrians could see the tracks and this caused controversy because the townspeople thought that they were ugly. To fix this problem, they created a facade that looked like pristine townhouses. In January of 1863, the Metropolitan Line opened to the public. The trains that were used in the beginning were steam engines. This filled the tunnel with smoke and on opening week, a few railway men had to be taken to the hospital. Regardless, it became 
became a huge success, and by the late 19th century, 580 steam engines were being used a day on the Metropolitan Line. In the early 20th century, more lines were built. Harry Beck came up with the line map. The line map was designed so that people could navigate their way through the tubes easily. His inspiration was from an electrical board diagram. People only have to know the start of their journey, where they have to change lines, and then their final destination. This map became the best way for the Underground Railroad system to help commuters not get lost, and it's used all around the world today. The tubes were so popular that more and more stations and lines were added. When World War II broke out in 1939, the tubes were used as a public air raid shelter during the Nazis' bombing campaign. Each night, people would come down to the platforms for safety. Before it got dark, a special train selling refreshments, tea, cakes, and food would stop at each station. People tried to keep other spirits up by playing games, singing, and they even celebrated Christmas. Once the refreshment train left, that would be the end of the trains for the night. People were then allowed to get down on the rails and bed down for the night. They often made makeshift hammocks for children that were tied between the rails. After the war, more stations and lines were built. While construction on the tubes were being done, the construction crews often ran into plague pits. Plague pits had thousands of bones in them, and they also disturbed graveyards, cemeteries, and other church crypts. Many of these bodies were relocated during construction, but as we all know, sometimes they don't remove everything, and regardless if they did, that's a lot of disturbed graves. There have also been train accidents in the tubes, as well as accidental deaths, suicide, and terror attacks. On July 7, 2005, London experienced a coordinated attack on their transportation systems. Three suicide bombers detonated bombs on three different trains. The explosions happened at about 8.50 a.m. One of the trains was on the circle line between the Aldgate and Liverpool Street stations. Another was on the Piccadilly line between the Russell Square and King's Cross station. And the third was also on the circle line at Edgware Road station. About an hour later, a fourth explosion occurred on a double-decker bus near Traverstock Square. The four bombings killed 56 people and injured 700. This was the largest attack London had seen since World War II. After the terror attack, London worked to rebuild the train system quickly and not let the terrorists disrupt their daily lives. The tubes were back online shortly after the attack, and they remain one of the busiest subway systems in the world. Today, the tubes have 272 stations, 3,000 staff members, and 1.35 billion people use the system each year. While the London Underground has a lot of rich history, it's also well known for another thing, ghost stories. Ghost stories have been told about the London Underground ever since it first opened. And now that you know a lot of the dark history of London, it's not hard to see why many people call this the most haunted underground system in the world.
Before I get to the tubes, I wanted to talk about another famous haunting that is also underground. When I talked about the Great Fire of London, I mentioned all of the new building regulations that were created to try to prevent another fire from happening. One of the new regulations was to build new buildings back with brick. Sounds easy enough, but when beforehand you had almost every single building made of wood, up until a few days ago, the demand for brick skyrocketed. You can't make bricks without one key ingredient chalk. Chalk was suddenly needed in large quantities and there was already a place to get chalk nearby, the Chislehurst Caves. The Chislehurst Caves are located in Chislehurst in southeast London, England. The caves are a massive labyrinth of man-made tunnels. They were created for the mining of flint and lime burning kills and the mines were already really old by the time of the Great Fire. The first mention of these mines dates back to the 9th century Anglo-Saxons. They were then not mentioned in historical record again until 1234 AD. The caves could have been even older than when they were first mentioned. After the Great Fire, the mine already had miles of tunnels. In the end, workers dug out around 22 miles worth. Working in the pitch black tunnels was dangerous work. Cavens and death were frequent. It's thought that they stopped using them as mines around the 1830s. They were also used during World War II as an air raid shelter. Today, the caves offers tours and hold events inside. Because so little is known about these caves, there are many theories and legends around them. One theory is that the caves were created by the Druids and then they were used by the Romans. Some also believe that the Romans were the ones who made the caves. There are whispers of old Celtic rituals and Roman altars that hide deep within the cave. There are also ghost stories. The cave is said to be really haunted. People who have visited them have said that there is something that feels off about the whole area. The strange feeling of being watched and even followed have been reported. There is also a legend that when the tunnels were opened back up to the public, a woman's skeleton was found at the bottom of a natural pool that is deep within the cave. Ever since her bones were disturbed, the woman's vengeful ghost has stalked the caves. She has been seen in a long white dress with long blonde hair. It's said that you can still hear her screaming and crying in the dark. She has also been known to scratch and attack people. One night in 1985, Dave Ducker and Chris Perry Manning decided to do a charity event to raise money. The challenge was that they would sleep separately in different parts of the cave for one night. The night of the event came and they split up. Dave slept near the pool of water and Chris slept down another tunnel, around the bend from the pool. After a few hours, Chris suddenly started screaming. Dave ran to Chris to see what had happened and he found Chris on the floor unconscious. He was rushed to the hospital and doctors said that his shoulder had been badly dislocated and broken as if someone twisted his arm in the wrong direction. To this day, Chris can't remember what happened, but many people believe that it was the vengeful spirit of the woman they found in the pool. In the north of London, there is a hidden river called the Fleet. The Fleet River was used for boat traffic in the north of London. The river once would take you directly to the River Thames, and it was used so often that by the 1700s, it was over-polluted. It got so bad that people were reporting seeing everything from animal guts and body parts thrown out by local butcher shops to dead bodies. 
Eventually, something had to be done about the unsanitary river. City officials decided to cover the river entirely and build a road on top of it. The Fleet River still makes its way to the River Thames, but it's much cleaner than it ever has been since humans started polluting it. In fact, this was done with many rivers that used to cut its way through London and the surrounding area. Many believe that moving water is a conductor for ghostly activity. This, coupled with the energy from thousands of underground electric trains that travel throughout the city and the fact that thousands of dead bodies have been disrupted during construction of these tunnels, it's no wonder that some think the tubes are the most haunted subway system in the world. So many ghosts haunt the network, it can be hard to know where to begin. It seems like every station has its own resident ghost, and every train has had something strange happen on board. If you think the ghost sightings only happen after hours, think again. Many passengers simply going about their day have reported a paranormal phenomenon known as the Phantom Rider. These Phantom Riders have been known to suddenly appear in empty seats next to you. This mostly happens when you enter a dark tunnel and you can see the reflection of the row that you are sitting in. For example, you are on the train and it's one of those rare times when it's not crowded, as it usually would be during rush hour. The seat next to you is definitely empty, and so are the ones in front of you. You know where everyone is around you. As you glance up at the reflection in the glass window, suddenly a person appears in an empty seat, sitting directly next to you. You turn quickly to look for yourself and find no one there. You chance a glance back at the reflection, and the person that was next to you is now gone. This is the story that many people have said happened to them while traveling on the underground. Others have even looked back at the reflection to still see a person sitting next to them. This can last for a while before they eventually disappear. I found some accounts online about these ghosts and they're usually dressed in period clothing, either from the late 1800s to early 1900s. These ghosts could be anyone from people who died in tragic train accidents or from graves that have been disturbed while creating the new tunnels. The Kensington Loop is said to be the most haunted stretch of railway on the line. This loop was created so southbound trains can turn around and face north again. Before entering the loop, all the passengers have to get off the train and the workers go through all of the cars to make sure that they are free of passengers. It takes about 20 minutes to travel through the loop. Security guards stay on the train during the journey, and security guards and train drivers have reported strange activity when the trains are empty. Two of the most famous instances happened four years apart from each other. Larry Gelabiti was a security guard on a train that had just entered Kensington Loop. The driver got word that there was a problem down the tracks, so they were told to stop the train and wait an extra five minutes. Larry was completely alone in his compartment when he suddenly heard a door down on the end of the train open and close. As it got closer to him, he looked up expecting to see the driver coming in his direction. But when his car door opened in front of him, there was no one there. The door even closed again by itself. Larry had no idea why all of the doors had opened and closed on their own, but he definitely got creeped out. Four years later, a driver named Bob Kerr was just beginning to enter the Kensington Loop. Everything was going as it should until he heard the doors open and close behind him. 
He heard them getting closer and closer to his end of the train until he looked back expecting to see the security guard and when suddenly his door opened and closed on its own, he saw that there was no one there. Bob ended up stopping the train and radioed to the main control room that he needed to search the train. He thought that someone was still on the train playing a prank on him. However, when he and the security guard walked the entire train, there was no one there. The Kensington Loop was just the start of the weird paranormal activity that takes place in the underground. At Hyde Park Corner Station, a man named Barry Oakley was getting ready to close the station for the night. It's up to the night staff to shut down all the escalators at various stations as well as locking up and turning off the lights. As usual, Barry had removed the breakers from the escalators, making them completely inoperable. Everything was quiet for a long time until 2.30 a.m. when Barry and a co worker suddenly heard a loud grinding sound. They ran into the station to find the escalators running again. The breakers were missing, so this shouldn't have been possible. Barry and his co-worker managed to stop the escalators by using the emergency brake. They were a little rattled about this, so they decided to go back to their office. They tried to go about their nightly tasks working on paperwork when suddenly Barry's co-worker let out a horrified gasp and backed into a wall. Barry thought that he was having a fit because it took Barry over five minutes to snap this man out of it. The man was standing still, looking petrified, staring out of the office window into the station. When Barry finally got him to snap out of it, the man turned to Barry, white as a sheet, and said, Didn't you see the face? The co-worker claimed that he saw a man standing on the other side of the glass and his face was horribly disfigured with a large gaping mouth. After the shift, Barry's co-worker refused to work at that station again, and he won't talk about his experience and his name remains anonymous. In 1958, 10 people died in a horrific train accident on the same line of track. Many people believe that the co-worker saw the ghost of one of the victims. In 1992, Terry Groundhill was completing paperwork after closing hours, when suddenly he heard the door to his office rattle. This was not usually a problem because his door always rattled when there were trains coming. He ignored it until the door rattled again. He paused and looked at the door and decided to stand up to see if there was a train coming. Usually there would be no trains on the track during this time of night, but the way his door was shaking, it seemed like there was one coming. The door rattled yet again and he went outside of his office to investigate. He looked around the platform and saw no one and no sign of a train coming. He decided to go upstairs to the office to ask if anyone had felt the shaking. When he got close to the top of the stairs, he had a weird feeling as if someone was standing behind him. He turned around and saw a woman in a white dress with long blonde hair standing on the platform. The only problem is she had no face. He stared at her for a couple of moments until he decided to run for it and ran up the stairs into the office. He told his co-workers what he had seen, and they told him that this ghost has been seen all over the station. No one knows who she is. Some think she died in a train accident, while others think she might be a plague victim. An important job for the night shift is a track walker. 
A track walker is someone who patrols the tracks at night when the tubes are closed. Many ghost sightings have happened while track walkers are on their rounds. The ghosts of monks have been seen walking down these tunnels. These monks have also been seen in the main terminal of the Jubilee Line. In the early 2000s, a track walker named Billy McCowan was walking the Jubilee Line. He decided to take a break and sit down for about two minutes. All was quiet when he suddenly heard footsteps coming toward him. He turned his flashlight in the direction of the footsteps. He heard them getting closer and closer, but there was no one there. He looked down and noticed the ballast moving. A ballast is a track bed upon which railroad ties are laid. He watched as footprints and vibrations of each step appeared on the ballast. They went past him and eventually stopped. He got up and quickly finished his walk. When he got to the next station, his supervisor was waiting for him. Bill told his supervisor, you're never going to believe what just happened, to which his supervisor cut him off and said, don't tell me you saw footsteps on the ballast. These phantom footsteps have been experienced by many track workers. Records show that a track walker had suffered a heart attack while on the job in that very tunnel years before. Many people think that his ghost is still going about his rounds. Track walkers have also talked of a phantom worker with a Tilly lamp. A Tilly lamp is a classic lantern that was used before flashlights were invented. They were often used by train workers in the late 1800s. This is believed to be the ghost of a track walker in the late 1800s. Workers have said that they see someone with a Tilly lamp walking ahead of them, but as they get closer, the light source disappears. The embankment line has an unused tunnel known as Page's Walk. This tunnel is said to hold dark energy. Some even believe a demon is lurking within the tunnel. Workers who use this tunnel as a shortcut have reported footsteps, strange noises, the sound of growling, lights turning on and off on their own, slamming of doors, temperature changes, and eerie feelings. Some workers won't even enter the space. One track walker who wanted to remain anonymous said that he never believed in ghosts until he started walking through Page's walk. Now he refuses to enter the tunnel at all. In the earlier parts of the 19th century, a line was built from the London Hospital to Whitechapel. This train transported nothing but dead bodies. Known as the Whitechapel Dead Body Train, it would only run once or twice in the after hours. Today, the tunnel is no longer in use, and it has been completely bricked off. However, people still claim to see this train coming out of the wall. This ghost train has also been seen on the tracks after the trains have stopped running for the night. It's said that the train's old steam engine whistle can still be heard echoing down the tunnel when everything else is eerily silent. Farringdon Station has a ghost known as the Screaming Spectre. It's believed to be the ghost of Anne Naylor. Anne Naylor was a young girl who was murdered by her employer in 1758. According to legend, her body was dumped where the station sits today. Now, people who have been to the station claim to have heard her blood-curdling screams for help. These have even been reported during busy days at the station. The Covenant Garden Ghost is one of the more famous ghosts in the London Underground. This spirit is believed to be the ghost of William Terrace. William was a performer at the Adelphi Theatre. 
1897, he was brutally murdered by another jealous actor named Richard Prince. While William was entering his dressing room, Richard stabbed William in the back with a dagger that he had bought that very afternoon. William died 25 minutes later inside the theater. According to records, William's last words were, I will come back. Shortly after this, actors began experiencing strange paranormal activity coming from the dressing rooms and the backstage area. William's ghost also shows up at the Covington Garden Station. People think his ghost shows up to the station because it's the spot where his old favorite bakery once stood. In 1972, a worker named Christopher was closing the station for the night. He had just finished locking up when he turned around to see a tall man in nice old-fashioned clothing standing there. Christopher apologized thinking he had locked someone in and he went to get the keys. As he was unlocking the gate to let him out, he turned to check on the man and there was suddenly no one there. Bank Monument Station has a ghost called the Black Nun. While people who have seen her call her a nun, she's actually believed to be the ghost of Sarah Whitehead. Sarah had an older brother whom she adored named Philip. Philip was working at the Bank of England during the early 19th century. Philip started to make some friends with the wrong people and it caused him to lose his job. He was caught forging checks and he was executed for his crime in 1811. Sarah became mad with grief and started showing up at the bank every day dressed in a long black dress and long black veil asking to see her brother. Eventually she became angry and started accusing the bank of cheating her out of her inheritance. She eventually was sent to an asylum but ever since her death the bank and the bank station have been haunted by her ghost. The reason she is called the black nun is because she is dressed in all black morning clothes. Some people mistaked her long black veil as a habit. She has been seen wandering on the platform and down the tunnels at night. It's said that you can hear her screams and mournful crying coming from empty tunnels. Bethel Green Station is haunted by the screams of women and children. The biggest tragedy in London during World War II took place here, not from a bomb, but from sheer panic. On the evening of March 3, 1943, an air raid siren sounded due to Nazi aircraft flying overhead. People ran to the station to seek cover. As the large crowd of people were entering the station, people in the back still out in the street started to panic and surge forward. This caused people to trip on the stairs and then a stampede started. The crowd crushed around 300 people. By the end, 173 people were killed, mostly women and children. The news of this tragedy did not reach the papers during the war due to the higher ups not wanting it to get out that simply panic had killed so many people. The full picture of this horrific night was not fully understood by the masses until years after the war had ended. For the station itself, the ghosts from that night have never let anyone forget. Midnight workers have reported hearing the sounds of screams from women and children coming from the area where the steps are. People who have heard these screams say it will haunt them until the day they die because they can also feel the pain and fear along with the screams of agony.
the Liverpool Street Station is home to several ghosts. The first is known as the Liverpool Street Ghost, or the man in white overalls. One night in the early 2000s, a CCTV line, that's a tongue twister to say, a CCTV line controller noticed a man standing on the Liverpool Street platform near the eastbound tunnel. This should not have been possible because it was two o'clock in the morning and all the doors to the station were locked. Steve Colts was station supervisor on shift that night and the line controller gave Steve a call to ask him to go down to the platform and get the man out of the station. Steve went down and didn't see anything. He even looked into the tunnel and saw no one. He went to the phone box on the wall and called the line controller to tell him that there was no one there. But the line controller said that he still could see the man standing on the platform. Steve went back and looked again, came back to the phone, and told the man that there was no one there. The line controller was adamant that there was someone on the platform. He said that he he even saw Steve walk right up to the man at one point during his search and told him that the man had white overalls on. Steve looked around the platform and then tried to convince the line controller that he didn't see anyone or anything in the area. Even the benches were completely empty and the tunnel was clear. Finally, the line controller believed him and hung up. As Steve was about to head back up the stairs, he looked over at a bench that he had passed multiple times on his search. And on the bench was a pair of white paper overalls. Steve felt a chill go up his spine because he knew that those were not there the whole time he was down there. They had just appeared while he hung up the phone. He had a clear view of the whole platform the whole time he was on the phone, so he would have seen someone put them there. Other ghosts that haunt the Liverpool Street Station are the ghosts of old mental patients. In the location where the station and the surrounding tunnels are today used to be the location of Old Bethlehem Royal Hospital. It was founded in 1247 and in 1377 they added an infirmary to house patients who were mentally ill. As you can imagine, the patients were horribly mistreated. Ghosts dressed in white nightgowns have been seen wandering the station and the tunnels both during operation and when it's closed. There is one ghost who makes herself known by screaming and laughing maniacally. According to legend, she is looking for her favorite coin. When she lived in the hospital, she was known to flip out if somebody took her coin. But when she died, someone stole it from her when they buried her body. Now her ghost wanders the tunnels and the station, screaming for her coin. At Elephant and Castle Station, a ghost of a little girl likes to board a train and she never gets off. Passengers boarding the train have said that they see a little girl in period clothing board the train alone until she simply vanishes. Guards and even train drivers have seen her board and never get off. Some workers have even searched for her because they become concerned that a little girl is all alone and is suddenly missing. All these searches have come up empty. No one knows who this little girl is, but when people get a good look at her, they report a strange feeling of sorrow and dread. Aldgate Station is so full of ghost stories that they offer a ghost logbook. The station was built on yet another plague pit, but this one seems to be very active around the actual platform instead of just the tunnels. Workers that are there after hours have reported the sounds of disembodied voices, footsteps, and cold spots. Women, children, and men dressed in medieval clothing have been seen wandering around the station. A ghost might have even helped save a man once. A worker slipped off the platform and and fell on a live wire. While he was laying on the ground, witnesses claimed to see an elderly woman stroking his head and consoling him until help arrived. 
Once help came, she smiled at the crowd and then vanished before everyone's eyes. She has been named the elderly angel ever since. I'd like to think that she's proof that not every ghost in the underground is mean or evil. But there certainly are a lot of ghost stories to the London Underground, and that's what makes the London Underground one of the most haunted subways in the world. you all enjoyed that journey with me to London's Haunted Underground. There were so many ghost stories that I could not cover them all, but I hope that you had fun learning about some of the most famous ones, and also I hope you guys enjoyed that history of London. When I did the Tower of London way back a few years ago, I realized that I never really covered the actual like full history of the city of London. I just kind of jump cut and moved on from a certain king into the White Tower. So that's why I wanted to give London a little more attention, and I hope that you guys enjoyed it, and I also hope that I did butcher too many names this time around. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode today. I hope you have a great day or evening or whenever you're listening to this podcast episode. This episode ended up being a lot longer than my normal bonus episodes, but I figured I wanted to give London a really thorough history and I really wanted to discuss all the hauntings underneath uh, the underground as much as possible. So I hope that you guys had as much fun listening to it as I had making it. I wanted to thank each and every one of you for being my awesome Patreons that you are. I can't wait to be back here with another episode as soon as I can and I will see you guys back here really soon on another bonus episode of Historically Haunted. Stay healthy and safe out there. Bye everybody. Mm -hmm.